0: Halter, um, Hugh is coming to us from Alton, Illinois. Alton, Alton—is there a right way to say that? Okay, um, he is one of the—I'm just going to call him—original dudes that when it comes to uh, the missional church movement, which is is pretty familiar, at least in in those that terminology to all of us. Uh, we've been planted as gospel-centered missional churches, um, but man, I remember when I was graduating college and coming into experienced Sacred City, and I was new to the gospel. I was new to this idea of being um, a missionary and a missional person just in normal life, and I remember hearing Hugh's name all the time. Um, books that he had written, like Tangible Kingdom, curriculum that we were using in different things like missional communities and, and um, some DNA group type stuff, and, uh, and just soaking all of that in because I had no idea what anybody was talking about. Um, I, I had no idea what I was really getting myself into and what God was going to do uh, in our church, in our churches. And so, Hugh, it's a, a huge joy to have you here with us this morning, and uh, I'm going to turn it over to you. I know you've got lots of stories to share, and so, um, yeah, here you go. You.
1: Glad to be Thank here. You. Good morning. Hugh. How we doing? Oh, none of that silliness. No need that applause. Thanks for calling me one of the originals, like a caveman. You <laughs> got him out of the cave this morning, the old feller. Nice to see all of you young faces. I was telling some of your boys back there the last couple of months, it seems like wherever I've been speaking, it's to like super old people. And uh, yeah, this is nice. You still have life in you. You don't know how bad it is out there yet. You just... Wide open. say, um, is there a? Can you see on the screen? Does it say "soft eyes" up there? Give it a minute. Now, see that? It's a miracle. There's a. Uh, I was hunting out. I'm from Portland, Oregon, originally, and we had a cabin out in eastern Oregon. And I, uh, I learned how to elk hunt. My father-in-law taught me, and. There's a a concept that I oftentimes share at the beginning of a time together, and I'm super excited that I'm not like speaking for you today, but that we actually have the whole day together. Um, I much prefer just that, you know, so, um, but part of what I oftentimes do when we are doing a day like this is to stop at the very beginning and sort of help us all to remember like that we're not looking for like turnkey solutions to life's problems or the problem of the church or uh, the world of mission that we now know exists in our cities. Um, But a term soft eyes, it's actually a Native American term. It's uh, it's where you teach young men to, uh, to not look so intently for the animals that they're trying to find, but that you look through the trees and you sort of relax your face so that you can actually see what's really in there. And I remember my father-in-law, I got so excited about elk hunting. I would, we would drive down these old logging roads, and I would hang my head out the window, intently trying to like find an elk or something. And I remember him going, hey, stick your head back in the car and relax your face, knucklehead. And try not to see them, and you'll see them. And um, that's a little bit what I want you to think of today when we think about Jesus and the church. Imagine if you're walking down the road. Well, let's just go there right now. Let's walk down. What's your main thoroughfare in Moline here? Okay, so we're we're heading down the main drag, okay? And let's just say Jesus is walking with us. Uh, He's had a coffee over at this little joint right here, this little drive-thru. What's that called? Yeah, fuel. Okay, so we just, Jesus just joined us at fuel. We're walking down the street. And Jesus turns and goes, hey, and he's talking to you guys. Hey, what, what do people say about me out there? What do you think? Just go ahead. Let's do a little bit together. Jesus is asking you in Moline, what do people say about me out there? What are they saying? What's that? He's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. Yeah. It's good. He's good. Good teacher yeah it's kind of interesting how would, we tend to go to good things right when we bring up the word jesus if you google jesus right now just put jesus is you know it it even today it all comes up good and that's a search engine that's people putting in all sorts of things about jesus uh, even people that aren't Christians, but somehow Jesus just like it comes up good. That's as Jesus in Matthew 16 is walking down the road with his disciples. He did. He stopped and he turned. And he goes, "Hey boys, what are the, what are people saying about me out there?" Remember, they said good things too. Well, some think you're like Elijah or one of the prophets, and you know it was all good stuff. Now, if we were to walk down the street, Jesus isn't with us, and we were just to go to to people along the streets um, and ask them about the church, what do you think they would bring up? Judgmental, hypocritical, cult? So you said, cult or cold? Could be both, right? <laughs> it's interesting how we, we kind of go to the dark side when you think of the movement um and now if you Google Christians are, so you do Jesus Is, it's great. If you Google Christians are, guess what comes up? It's all bad. <laughs> like somehow the movement doesn't reflect the founder and the reputation. That's that's why Jesus asked his own disciples after they said, Look, people love you out there, like they're saying really great things. He said, Okay, so to you guys, and he's probably talking to more folks like you and me. People that he's asking to be a part of his movement, maybe, you know, his young leadership circle, um, his porterbrook group, if you will. And he says, So what do you guys say about me? And remember what Peter said in that one? He said, You're the Messiah, the Son of the Living God which Messiah meant like the new, the new reigning king. And that was the first time Peter ever got one right, like as far as we know. Peter always got it wrong, but that one he got right. And he said, yeah, you're the center of the cinnamon roll. You're like everything. Thank you. That's a Midwestern. You get what I'm throwing on, okay? And so Jesus, interestingly, again, have some soft eyes about this idea. He said, um, Peter, blessed are you. Like, good job, bro. (laughs) Um, This was not revealed to you by men, but by my father. This is one of the great, like, you guys are young enough. This is the most important revelation that you can get at your age is that Jesus is actually the Messiah. Not not your son, not the guy that did that thing, but that he is the center of the cinnamon roll, for everything that you think of and everything that you do, that he actually is the reigning king. If Jesus was the reigning king in the movement of Christianity, our street cred should mirror the same street cred Jesus had. Agreed? So if the movement does not reflect the founder, then oftentimes you have to go, well, then maybe he's not the Messiah. Oftentimes when I go do consulting with churches or movements, um, I sniff around for the first two hours or first day, and I'm just trying to figure out where Jesus is not the Messiah. And it's usually very evident. A lot of times, most times, it's the denominational distinctives or their theological flavor that is actually the Messiah. Because then when Jesus says something really clear, they don't do it because it goes against the way that they read the Bible. Sometimes it's the, uh, what we call polity or or how we organize as a movement. So Presbyterians organize differently than Baptists and different than Pentecostals. And so oftentimes the way that they do things is the Messiah. And so Jesus will still say, well, hey, why don't we do this? And they'll go, no, that's not how we roll. A lot of times if you unpeel the onion money money ultimately or fear fear of losing money is oftentimes the Messiah. If we ask people to do that missional community thing here, like they'll just go to Joe's church cuz Joe doesn't ask them to do that stuff. Joe's happy if they just show up and sing and and stuff and so we don't want to like rock the boat we're already losing, right? Every denomination in in America is, is on the rapid decline. Like at the present pace, uh, even in the Midwest here, even in Texas, I always tell Texans, even in Texas, look, you can figure out your heat thing. You're not going to be able to figure out the church thing either because the, everybody's moving to Texas now from all over the world. Maybe they won't, they'll slow it down now, but um, is this making any sense? Like, like to have soft eyes is to go, Jesus, to reform the movement. we got to stop looking at all this other stuff what are, I mean, You think about all the other dilemmas that are facing the movement. Throw, throw some of those at me. Like, when you go, wow, if we don't figure this out, we're in trouble. What, what would some of those be right now? What's that? Yeah, relativism. Yeah, political issues. Back in my day, you know, we don't, like, all the political issues that you guys are having to, kind of work around. We had the moral majority way back in the 70s and 80s, so there was a little bit of Jerry Falwell and a little bit of connection between the church and politics, and it didn't go well then. In your generation, like what you've seen happen over the last four to six years is unprecedented, like, and you recognize it really does affect how people view things, right? We used to be able to just go, oh, that's politics, but we do church, and we do Christianity. Now you, you recognize you can't do that, right? You can't even do that in your own family. Like, just to get just to get through Thanksgiving without a blow-up, right? It's harder now, isn't it? You can't really say what you really think sometimes. And you have the generational stuff. The way that you guys see the world is not the way your parents saw the world or the way that the grandparents saw the world. What other issues are, are you facing that you think... Are making it harder, issues, if you will. What's that? Yeah, individualism for sure. Yep, consumerism. Yeah, cynicism. That's huge. It's just huge right now. It shows itself up in um, in not wanting to get involved. You don't think the world's going to work out anyway. What's the point? right? Yeah fear. You guys have any issues related to the gay agenda? Is that, is that at all a problem out here? Did you know that there are gay people? <laughs> yeah, so that's like you knew you knew like you know right now that is splitting denomination at like just in the last two years, a lot of the denominations that were holding on are being torn apart over that issue. Uh, they're also being torn apart over women in leadership. That's come, that'll be the next 10 years. Uh, so these are huge issues, and we don't always talk about them because we're like, look, we're getting our lunch eaten just on the political issues right now. But never before has the church, the movement, ever faced this many things, and you realize... Like if I were to say, look, the church will get moving when we figure all this out together, what would you th- What would you say? <laughs> Ain't going to happen, right? So what if you could look through the trees and you could not look at all the issues and you could find Jesus as the Messiah? And what if Jesus would actually tell us all this morning, like, I got that stuff, like I'm not freaking out over it. <laughs> I knew it was coming as actually rougher back in my day. If you'll just let me be the Messiah. Then, then he said this, and this is, again, the, sort of where Matthew 16 goes. Who do people say that I am? This, who do you guys say that I am? Messiah. Great, blessed are you. This was not revealed to you by men, but by my Father, the great revelation. So upon you, Peter, a complete knucklehead, I can build my church. And every one of us needs to, to see through the trees a little bit this morning and go, Jesus is still able to grow and build this very beautiful counterculture movement of people. That's, that's what the church in his mind was. It was not going to be, it didn't look like church attenders. It didn't look like people that um, have like a deep faith, but then just kind of go about their business. These were going to be change agents, every one of them what he meant by the church, and so upon you, I, on anyone that says, I'm the Messiah, I can build the church in any era, in any wacky time, under any world leader, with any and all of these issues going on, and then he said, I think the great key, the one that I keyed in on the most, he said, and I will give you the keys, that's why I kept saying, I want you to see the word key, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, Okay? So I want you to hear that this morning. God is still building His church all over the world. It's, it's actually going berserk in different parts of the world. Uh, right now, the fastest growing places where the gospel and the church are just, they're literally not, not just people coming to faith in their hearts, but where they're changing the landscape of the cities that they live in and the countries, the underground church of China which we believe is led by 60% or more of teenage girls. It's unfunded. It doesn't have designated uh, professional leaders. It doesn't have places. It just kind of happens. The other place, the underground church in the Middle East, we also think that's being led by people mostly under the age of 20. So are you starting to see through the trees a little bit? So don't, don't look so much about trying to figure out all these issues, but today let's look to Jesus. Sometimes when uh, when we do high-end, you know, pastor training with the paid guys and gals, whenever you're trying to fix this thing called the church, we oftentimes try to talk about church stuff. So this is, we just call this ecclesiology. How do you spell it? Anybody know how to spell It's in Porterbrook, I don't know. Okay, ecclesiology. It's a study of the church. Whenever you try to fix this thing, because this is struggling right now, right? This is a mess. Um, Oftentimes we we try to fix it at an ecclesiological or theological level. So most churches, by the way, start with theology. Okay? If we study Scripture, we try to get to know the truth, right? Uh, And usually right away our ecclesiology is tied to that. It's almost like you can't disconnect them. The way we do church is the way we think about the Bible. Okay? And then when we've done enough church, we do little seminars like this or whatever, which we're really talking about missiology. How do we, how do we get out there in the world and do what Jesus wants us to do? Um, I generally agree with a great missiologist that's a best friend of mine named Alan Hirsch. It says, whenever you try to see reformation in the church, Semper Reformanda, that was the cry of the Protestants. The church ought always to be reforming. But sometimes the least reforming churches are what? Reformed churches. Most set in their way. But their motto, Semper Reformanda, why did they become the reformed church? Because they were rebelling against something that didn't reflect What they knew Jesus to be. And so Alan Hirsch says, whenever you you talk about reformation of the movement, you gotta start with Christology, which is the study of what? Yeah, the study of Jesus. It's actually not just the salvific, the salvation stuff of Jesus. You have to start with his life, the humanity of Jesus. And if you can begin to see Jesus as not just your Savior, right? If we say, why did Jesus come to earth? And we go, well, he came to what? What's, what's the big answer? To die for sins, right? So it's a salvific. Jesus came flying into humanity to save the cosmos. When you leave him as a salvation-only type of a figure, then you do put him sometimes up on crosses, and, you know, we worship him. We can get very emotional when Jesus is your savior, right? He's that one that did that amazing thing for us way back when. And so you might even hang him around your neck. He becomes a symbol of your salvation. But when you actually study Christology, it's about his humanity, just as much as it is about his, what he did on the cross, if you will. And so now Jesus isn't just somebody that you worship, So to have Jesus as the Messiah, if you say, well, the Messiah just means the one that died? No. The Messiah means that he becomes the model for my own humanity. That's what Christology is about. Study how he lives so the Gospels become your textbook. Is this making any sense? Okay, so to reform the church, you have to really... Get along with this Jesus fella. You got to take a walk with him, and go. Am I am I really willing to walk in the neighborhood the way that you would walk in the neighborhood? Am I willing to all everything that Jesus did? Am I willing to actually? That's why, like when Jesus comes in, I'm just kind of free thinking right now. Um, Jesus it says in John, He comes into the world as light, and then He says, "So you therefore will be called children of." Light. so, he's what we call the first fruits or the firstborn among a new creation. So the church is actually all—all all the church means—it's a whole bunch of the new created ones. Jesus is the archetype or the—the the form that we therefore go. Oh, then that becomes our form. That's why, like, I'm a old joke with people sometimes, and tell you I'm an introvert. I'm going to talk a lot about evangelism today, a lot about people coming to faith. But I personally am an introvert, which means I don't even like humans. Like as, as a general thing. I like me. I like myself. I like being with me. Uh, I never argue with myself. I I just don't. I, I think I'm a delightful person to be around. Like I just I could be with me all day long with nobody else. But Hugh Halter has been crucified with Christ, so it's what? It's no longer Hugh that gets to live, but it's Christ who what? Okay, so when we start going, let's reframe the movement, we have to resettle the Jesus issue. If you just want to let him keep being your savior, you'll be a church attender, and you'll be a non-reformed, reformed church member, and eventually you'll be more a part of the problem. So Christology will lead you to, what do you, what do you think in, in all of the, these ology words, what do you think is next? If you actually say, I will follow Jesus as my archetype, guess where Jesus takes you first? It's missiology. Boys, then drop your nets and What? It's a moving, <laughs> like we're going to go here today at 2.30, and then you're going to meet these people, it's going to freak you out, and then by 4.30, we're going to be over here, we're going to have to debrief that, because Jesus is always moving. Even while you're sleeping, it says he is always at work. He always goes, he's the great missionary. That's when we use the word missional, sometimes missional has been freaking people out. Uh, in your own church settings, I wouldn't even use the word I would use the word missionary-ish. We're just trying to be more missionary-ish. And everybody will like that, right? Because we like the sound of a missionary. uh, When it said, uh, go and make disciples, the, the biggest New Testament word, go. That's missiology. And you know, how many of you have changed a little bit of your theology along the way? Anybody? Just have a little, you know, courage... Yeah, and and my guess is if we took time to go, why did you change your theology? You'll probably say because I ran into a dilemma. Out there, her name was Lisa. She challenged the way. I mean, isn't that usually what. So this is why Jesus always has us going. Why did he take the boys two by two into that city? Why did he take the long route and cruise through Samaria? is because he had to change their entire paradigm of what they saw in the world and what they saw from their Jewish religious system. Because if he was going to give them the keys to the kingdom of heaven that would renovate the entire universe, then they would have to take off the lens by which they see the world and pick up a new pair of glasses and go, oh, are you starting to see through the trees a little bit? Okay, so... Christology will lead to missiology, and along the way, just like you'll watch Jesus, then he begins to drop a little theology. He starts to teach about the kingdom of heaven. Those of you that are looking up here to try to read what I'm writing, you can't just, you got to stay with what I'm saying, okay? So whenever I scribble, I'm just scribbling what I'm saying. So Christology leads to missiology, which leads to theology which is his teaching about the gospel, about the kingdom. Guys, remember how he would go, hey, the kingdom is like this? Then he'd go, ah, the kingdom's like that. One of his little, the kingdom is like this, he said, it's kind of like a little mustard seed. Remember that one? You know, it's a little image, it's an image. Like if this is how the whole kingdom, like you want to take over Moline and um, Davenport region with the gospel, it starts like this. We were talking in the back about, I think the perfect size for a localized missions community is about 40 people. I think you could do more in Moline with 40 sold out Jesus following missionaries than you could do with 4,000 church attenders. That's why Jesus said, so I don't need a lot of you. I think Jesus was an introvert too. I don't think he really liked people. I just need a little bit. I don't need a lot of them. Remember the multitudes that would follow him? He didn't seem to even like the multitudes. (laughs) So he would say stuff just to freak him out and get him to leave. Oh yeah, it's nice you're all in the building, but uh, today I would like you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they were like, (laughs) out. Grab the kids, honey. Let's go. Then he would say the kingdom's like that. And then Two weeks later, go, guys, remember the kingdom is like this. So to Jesus, theology was the teachings of how the kingdom works. So when he said in Matthew 16, I will give you guys the keys to the kingdom of heaven, he was basically giving us an equation for the renovation of the church. So you guys don't worry about building the church. You can't anyway. And by the way, you don't even have to worry about trying to convince people of the gospel. You actually can't. I got, I'll build the church, and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and he will, what, convict the world of sin. Like, you guys don't have a shot at it. There's no. So the pressure's off, guys. Like, think about that. You don't ever have to do any of the heavy lifting, but you do have to learn the keys to the kingdom and figure out how to live that out in everyday life. And to me, I've found that to be fun, hard. But I feel like the kingdom is, remember he called it the good news. He didn't call it crappy news. Like it's good news. It's like your family will enjoy the family more if you'll learn to live life in the kingdom. And that your friends around you, they'll actually respect you way more than they'll respect people that they thought were Christians. there will be something that's really good about your family and so I want to share just a little bit. How much time do I have left in this? I'm just doing the intro right now, okay? Oh, by the way, let me finish this. Fifteen minutes That's what I got, all right? If you just want to finish. there, Oh, there's the ecclesiology. It shows up at the end. It's kind of a back end. So if you'll settle the Jesus thing, Christology, he'll lead you every day to go somewhere. He'll re- reframe what scripture means, what theology becomes for you, and then eventually you'll see that church will begin to form. Everywhere that the Halter family is gone, we've never tried to start churches, but we've always had to facilitate church because we've seen God building that. Right now we're in, um, so Portland, Oregon was the first church plant. That was inner city, um, 50% African-American, 50% white context. Uh, it was a very poor context. So we moved to the suburbs of Denver. No black folk, all white folk. More money, and that was that was the Tangible Kingdom story. If you ever read that, it was a network of missionary communities all around the Denver metroplex. Eventually, many of our missionary movements uh, started to head more into the city. Actually, poorer people went to the suburbs in Denver. It was too expensive to live downtown, so the suburbs. We picked the suburbs because we were poor, so we headed out there. But uh, that became the story uh, that we did talk about. That's where we outlined the keys of the kingdom, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And then, um, you know, and all the way along, we did maybe non-traditional church because our son had really severe epilepsy. And Ryan would have about 20 seizures a day, every day. So we were not able to leave our house. So thus we had to just learn how to be missionaries out of our home. That's why a lot of people that we talk about that came to faith, they actually came to faith in our living room. Um, And people back in the missional days, they thought we were house church proponents. We really weren't. We just couldn't leave our house. So (laughs) everything happened in the house. Um, And then we just started to multiply and teach people how to open up their front doors and their tables and became a little bit of a movement. Um, Ryan, about seven, eight years ago, he went way past life expectancy. He was supposed to have probably cashed it in when he was five or six, and now he was mid-20s, and we found an assisted living center for him uh, in Alton, Illinois. So if you wondered, why is Hugh from Alton? Anybody ever been down there? That's what I thought. Okay, One. It's just, it's uh, 20 minutes north of St. Louis, it's right over the the river, it's Illinois, it's, but it's a river town just like this is, right on the Mississippi, and um, we found this assisted living center for him there, and when we sent him out here, it was awesome for him, but it was also, for the first time, awesome for Cheryl and I, because we didn't have to rhythm our lives around his disability anymore, and so... To make a long story short, we uh, I asked my wife what she would like to do with our new life, and she said, I'd love to get a horse ranch. And uh, so we leveraged every penny we had, and we bought this little cruddy four-acre ranch about 20 minutes south of Denver, overlooking the entire Rocky Mountain range, and we made it really beautiful. It was a big log cabin with a barn and equestrian center, like riding arena, and So we bought horses and chickens and all that stuff, and I actually resigned from leading the Tangible Kingdom story. Uh, I was still like an elder in that movement, but I decided I didn't want to take any responsibility for the church leadership, and so I just wanted to hang out with Cheryl, and I actually don't like horses, but I acted like it just so she could sort of live her dream, And, uh, and then about you know, every quarter, every you know, four or five times a year, we would fly into St. Louis and we would go visit Ryan at his assisted living center, and we would roll into Alton. And as we would spend time in Alton, we started to realize that it was a very unique city. It was very poor. Average family income in Alton is about twenty-two thousand. Um, that's family income. Um, incredible racial history there, both good and bad. Um, But we started to feel like, I don't know, it was just kind of perking our interest. Um, We found beautiful 5,000 square foot Victorian homes for $100,000. We're like, what what happened to this town? And we started to hear that they had lost about two-thirds of their population over the last 30 years. Um, But at one time, Alton had more millionaires than any other city in America back in the 1920s, 1930s. And so we just, you know, we saw all these boarded up buildings and boarded up houses. And um, on one particular trip, my wife coming out of an Italian bar, she said, hey, why don't we just sell the ranch and move here? So we had had the ranch for two years, loving life. She goes, why don't we sell this thing? And why don't we move here and see if we can do something to help this town? And we got in a bit of a skirmish on the sidewalk. I said something probably with a bad word in it. It's like, what the blank are you talking about? We just got rid of our son and we have a ranch. Like, we can come visit here. Like, what are you thinking? And she's like, I know, but like, she goes, like, don't you sense like God's asking us to come here? I was like, no, not at all. (laughs) We got home. I actually told her, I said, calm down. Let's just go home. We'll pray about it for a while. So the very first morning we get back to Denver, she's like, hey, can we talk about it? I was like, what's to talk about? She's like, are you even praying about it? I was like, and I did a Rahab lie. I said, yeah. I hadn't prayed about it at all. I There's no interest in moving to Alton. from." Have you ever been to Denver? Okay, so you know what I'm talking about, Denver or Alton, okay? And so she goes, so when I said, yeah, I'm praying about it, she goes, what is Jesus telling you? starting with Christology on me. And I said, well, he's telling me we shouldn't go. (laughs) And I remember her face, she's like, oh, that is so weird. It's like we have two Jesuses in the house, because when I pray about it, and she really was, she'd spend a couple hours every morning really praying about this. She goes, it's funny, like my Jesus is telling us that we've had a good two-year rest, it's time to go. So yeah, our, our little Jesus was battled for about three, four weeks. And then we finally had a family talk. My two daughters who were 24 and 25, one brand new married and one about to be married. And the boys that they were marrying were home. And so we had a little family talk. And I, I, I started the talk by going, hey, Cheryl, tell the kids your stupid idea. <laughs> and so Cheryl said, yeah, I, I think we uh, your dad and I uh, I think Jesus is asking us to go to this town and see if we can help out. And I said, Tell them what you think, girls. And I thought they would totally take my side. And my oldest said, Dad, we know you're exhausted and have needed a break. But uh, my oldest goes, But I think you got one more in you. So, no, it wasn't oh, I was like, whatever. So, McKenna, <laughs> what do you think? And McKenna's like, Dad, I love this, and and my youngest goes, Dad, you remember when we moved to Denver? Like, we didn't know anybody, and look what God did. Like, wouldn't it be fun to go there as a family and do this next mission together? And she goes, when Jesse and I get done with college next year, like, we'd love to come out. She goes, I hope you guys do it. So that was the talk. And then about, I don't know, it was... Maybe two weeks later, I'm still not moving. I don't want to go. And Cheryl said, what is your problem? And I said, it's not that I don't want to go. Like the idea that the Lord still has my face on his refrigerator and actually would still ask us to do something really unique, I actually love that thought. In fact, there may not be a better, hopefully you guys pick that up, there may not be a better thought about the gospel than that he literally knows exactly who you are and he has specific things that he wants you to do. So I said, I don't mind going. She goes, then what's the problem? I said, I just don't want to leave. So if we could take Denver in the weather and 200 of these amazing friends that we have now and the mountains and the elk hunting and the golf court, like if we just take it all, I don't mind going. And that's the problem with where the church must begin, where each of us must begin, is the hardest part about going with Jesus is leaving. Leaving whatever that is, leaving comfort, leaving success, leaving whatever. Because Jesus' movement is not upwardly mobile. Jesus' movement is a descending movement of people that die. They just die. You're if you follow him, you're a dead man. We are a dead woman. And then when he says, yeah, why don't you go to Alton? You go, sure. (laughs) Then when we finally got there, I didn't even know what we were doing there. had no idea. I just, I would walk the streets and pray. My prayers sounded like grumbling. I was like, why did you ask us here? Then I would get around to it, like, what do you want us to do? And about six months in, a gentleman that had bought lunch for a pastor's training I was doing I didn't even meet him, I just wrote him a note, John, thanks for buying lunch for all these guys. Someday I'd love to meet you. Thank you for buying lunch for everybody. He said, well, yeah, let's meet next week. So I met John once for lunch and then um, six months into the story, John called me out of the blue and said, hey, are you busy right now? I said, no. He said, "Let's, let's do round two. He goes, I want to show you some buildings I own. And he took me into downtown where we were all, we kind of bought our house, bought our two daughters' houses, bought uh, my oldest daughter a crack house for $12,000, renovated that. <laughs> she wanted to live right, she goes, put, put me on the hardest street. So how about, how about the hardest street one block over though? She's like, no, hardest street. So we bought that, renovated that, bought another house for my daughter about four blocks away from us and her So we're driving downtown and John pulls up in front of this big federal post office that's boarded up and he goes, what do you think about this one? I said, oh, it's beautiful. He goes, I'm glad you like it because I feel like I'm supposed to give it to you. And I said, I don't want it. (laughs) Uh, Because I'm still trying to get back to Denver, I thought. It's like an annulment. Like if we can get this done before the first year, we can get out of this thing. you know. And he goes, well, he goes, and he took the key off the key ring. It's kind of the keys of the kingdom. It's weird to me. I remember him pulling the key off of the... He's like, I really think you're going to end up with this building. But um, take the key, have it for a couple months. If you really don't want it, then give me the key back. I think you're going to know what to do to help our town. That's what he said. After my wife had said, we should move to this town to see if we can help it out a <laughs> And so we turned this building into what we call Post Commons. Because in a town of 30,000, um, no coffee shop, no daytime space for people hang out at all, no place where uh, white and black folk hang out together. Um, we just decided let's make the living room for our city. So we created a really high end third wave coffee joint. We have a coffee roasting company. Um, we have my daughter started commons yoga in the big back events room for people that can't afford yoga um, we started a co-working space called groundworks down in the basement we help incubate other businesses or social entrepreneurships or anything that would be according to our nonprofit would be a good work a good work was what jesus called the kingdom and so we're Three years into that, we're gonna talk a little bit more about that. But what we've done and how we frame the church and what we're doing is all we're trying to do is create a kingdom ecosystem full of missional communities and businesses and things that actually change the town. There's a there's a passage and I'll leave you with this for just this session this morning in Proverbs. It says, Where the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. It's a picture of the church in action that if we do what we're supposed to do, if we'll just live out the keys to the kingdom, and eventually those good works will be seen and people will thank us for being there and not want us to go. I was out in front of my son, Ryan, who I'd shared about. actually finally passed away about seven months ago. Um, And a woman was crossing just in front of our sidewalk, probably Week after he died, people knew that he was in our house. We did hospice and brought him home, and so a lot of folks knew that that happened in our house. So people would come by and leave flowers or whatever. And uh, this woman, as I was out in the front yard, she uh, she walked by. She said, "Hey, you don't know me. My name's Shirley." Um, She said, "Ryan used to come down and we would talk for a while." And uh, she said, "I'm really sorry about Ryan." And then I said, "Thank you very much, ma'am." And she started to walk off, and she stopped and she said, by the way, um, we're so glad that your family moved into our town. You guys have made such a difference. And we've heard that probably 10 times in the grocery stores, at the CrossFit gym. People just said, man, we're glad you guys have done what you've done. And I think about how easy it's been to talk to Jesus or about Jesus to people. Figure about 200 people I've shared the story of Jesus with sitting out at the coffee shop. It's I've never had to ask any of them. They've all come to us to ask us. Um, so easy for Jesus to build his church if we would just live out the kingdom. So let's let's talk to the rest of the day about crazy entrepreneurial innovations and in bringing the good news to bear in your cities. <laughs>